I don't know about you, but I like hot food hot, and I like cold food cold. Now, some foods are best just one way or the other, but there are some foods that work in both ways. Take steak, for example. When I grill up a steak and I pull it off the grill and get to eat it juicy, piping hot, it is so good. But then I love to take that steak and put it in the fridge. I pull it out the next day, I slice it thin, I put it in some bread, and it makes a killer sandwich. Steak just works, hot or cold. Not all foods are like that, though. But when a food is best eaten hot or cold, the last thing we want to do is to eat it lukewarm. Yuck! I love clam chowder. And I once was at a restaurant and they served me a bowl of lukewarm chowder. It was horrible. I had to spit it out of my mouth. You see, when food is supposed to be hot or cold, lukewarm just doesn't cut it. And what is true for food is true in many other areas of life as well. Sports teams do not want lukewarm fans. Can you imagine going to Autzen Stadium and what the atmosphere would be like if the crowd was lukewarm? There'd be no excitement, no energy. Businesses don't want lukewarm employees. And Jesus doesn't want lukewarm followers. And yet he has some. In fact, he has an entire church that is lukewarm. It's a congregation that we meet in the Bible. It's a group of believers that live in the ancient city of Laodicea. And these people are in great spiritual danger precisely because they are spiritually lukewarm. Their faith is adrift. Their souls are in danger. Jesus is deeply concerned for their well-being. And how does he respond? He responds by writing them a love letter. Now, it's not a gentle letter because this is a desperate situation that cries cries out for some tough love. And yet, because Jesus is love and he's expressing love, he doesn't simply point out the depth of their problem. He urgently pleads with them to get their lives in order. Because he loves them, his goal is not to beat them up, but to rescue them. Jesus wants to save them from themselves. And this letter is a warning to every church in every generation so that we will pay attention and not make the same mistakes that our spiritual ancestors did. And so we have the chance now to listen to Jesus this morning and to hear how this love letter might speak to us and equip us to live as more faithful followers of Christ. Let's see what we can learn from Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. 
Now, this is Jesus speaking. He is talking to the Apostle John and dictating this letter that will be sent to the church. And Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, Jesus says. Which means when it comes to God, you can run but you can't hide. He knows what's going on with his people. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's a pretty vivid description, isn't it? You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Pretty direct. Pretty tough. And Jesus begins this letter in a fascinating way by describing himself as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, and as the ruler of God's creation. And all of those things hang together in a very interesting way. And I first want to talk about this word amen. We use it all the time, but do we actually know what it means? If you think you know what amen means, just shout out an answer. What's that? I agree. Let it be so. Anyone else? We often use amen at the end of a prayer as if it means I agree. There's nothing wrong with that. Biblically, though, it means so be it or let it be true. And that is profound. When we say amen, we're saying this prayer that's just been prayed, this scripture that's just been read, we're saying may it be true. And Jesus is now applying that to himself. He's saying, my amen is the guarantee of God's truth. In other words, God the Father speaks. Jesus says, amen. So be it. Let it be true. And then it happens. He affirms and puts his stamp, his guarantee on God's truth. And how can Jesus make that claim about himself? It's because, as he says here, he's an eyewitness. He is a true and faithful witness. He's an eyewitness to everything about God. He was with God. He came from God. He returned to God. And oh, by the way, he is God. And as he tells us, his eyewitness account goes all the way back to creation. And the word translated ruler in verse 14 is a very complex Greek word. It also means beginning, and we need both meanings to understand what is being said here. Jesus is telling us that he rules creation because he was there from the start. He's the amen. He's the faithful eyewitness, the ruler of all creation. Now, if Jesus is who he claims to be here, then he is not someone we can afford to be lukewarm about. And yet, the Christians in Laodicea, they are. Now, they're not cold toward Jesus, so they haven't rejected him. 
Yet their faith isn't hot either. There's no passion. There's no fire. There's no zeal. There's no continual hunger for more of Jesus in their lives. They are just lackadaisical about their faith. They actually have become indifferent toward Jesus because other things in life are more important, as Jesus points out. And what's more important to them? Things like money. Money and possessions. Those are the things that take center stage in their life, not Jesus. And it's no surprise that the believers have adopted those particular values because at the time of this letter, Laodicea is a wealthy city. It has a diverse economy based on finance and textile manufacturing and medicine. It is a prosperous consumer culture where people eat well and dress well and live well. And people in the congregation are caught up in the same materialistic way of life as everyone else. So they have nice homes and nice clothes. They eat good food and live comfortably. And I imagine that what's true for individuals probably is true for their church. I'll bet this congregation meets in a beautiful place. I'll bet they have great offerings. I'll bet the church treasurer can look with pride on the finances of this church. Yet individual wealth or congregational wealth is not a sign of spiritual health. You see, these believers have been subtly lured by the cultural idols of money and possessions and security and comfort to the point where they believe that they are people without needs. That is a loaded statement for anyone to make. It's a statement of self-satisfaction. It's a statement of self-righteousness. It's a statement of self-sufficiency. I do not need a thing. How can anyone in truth ever say that? I have a friend who pastors here in the Pacific Northwest, and he's in a community where there are many upper-income people. And he encounters this same attitude all the time. He's learned that wealth is a great mask, a mask that people can hide behind. And because they are successful, however they might define that, they convince themselves that their lives are in order. We've got what we need. We're good. You know what? It's a lie. we think we have no needs, then our faith is not in Jesus. Our faith is in our stuff. And by the way, I don't know about you, but it's really easy for me to think of the rich as other people. Certainly not me. However, based on historical standards and based on the realities of modern life, most of us are rich. We have access to conveniences and creature comforts that prior generations couldn't even dream of. And most Americans, certainly not all, but most Americans experience a quality of life that many other people in this world envy. And on top of it, we, like the Laodiceans, we live in a materialistic culture which tells us that money and possessions are what lead to more happiness. 
And so it's really easy for us to surround ourselves with stuff and become self-satisfied. Or we can become convinced that we don't have enough, so we pursue more and more stuff in a meaningless search for success and happiness. And all of this means that you and I are not immune from the problem that Jesus highlights here. This is a warning and a reminder that we cannot allow ourselves to focus on the physical and material dimension of life to such a degree that we marginalize God. Because if we marginalize God in our lives, that's when we become lukewarm. Jesus doesn't really want to deal with lukewarm people. As he says here, he wants to deal with someone who has an actual real spiritual temperature. And the best situation, of course, is to be spiritually hot because then we are pursuing God passionately and the life of faith is a a vital part of our daily experience. If we're spiritually cold, then obviously we're not right with God. But it's much easier to recognize our need for God. Jesus rescues spiritually cold people all the time as his Holy Spirit does his work and his ministry of convicting people and showing them how far they are from God. Jesus says, I wish you're either cold or hot. You see, if we're lukewarm, we're in real trouble because we can give ourselves the illusion of spirituality. Lukewarm people tend to do the right things. We pray, we go to church, we read the Bible, and we we may be blinded to the fact that we're just going through the motions. And so we pray and we say amen at the end of a prayer and then we get up and go about our business without ever looking to see if God might actually do something in response to our prayer. We read the Bible and then we go through our day without ever looking to see if God might take some aspect of that truth of his that we have encountered and then apply it to our lives in a way that actually makes a difference. Lukewarm people claim to believe, but the actions of lukewarm people indicate that they don't take God very seriously. And in the case of the Laodiceans, they don't take God as seriously as they do their paycheck or their house. Do we take God as seriously as our hobbies and our car and the size of our retirement fund? See, for many people, that's the most important stuff. Lukewarm believers are indifferent believers. And here's the problem. They don't realize how far they are from God. And that's why Jesus is so deeply concerned. That's why this is such spiritually dangerous territory. I once was sitting in church listening to a pastor preach on this passage, and he made an interesting comment about the Laodiceans that I've never forgotten. He said, I think God actually could remove the Holy Spirit from a church like this and no one would even notice. Man, that gripped my heart. 
As I've thought about it, though, I believe you might be right. A congregation like this wouldn't notice because they're not paying attention to God. They're paying attention to everything else but God. And it's clear from what Jesus says that the Laodiceans have not been paying attention, but I'll bet they are now. I think Jesus' letter is a huge wake-up call. And it probably hits them in a way that we don't fully realize. Being called specifically a lukewarm church would hit them very hard because of a common saying in the ancient world about hot and cold. Here's what people used to say. Hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless. Ooh. So these people would hear Jesus say, you're lukewarm. And they would see that as a statement that the way they practice their Christianity is useless. And the painful truth is that these well-off, self-satisfied, comfortable Christians are poor in everything that matters most. And that's why Jesus urges them to shift their priorities And he gives some specific examples of what they really need. They don't need more earthly gold, like the kind of of gold they accumulate through, through their jobs. It's not about human wealth. What they need is refined gold from Jesus, which is the everlasting truth of his word. That's the wealth that matters. And they don't need more clothes like the ones made in their local businesses. They need to wear white garments, which symbolizes the pure heart of a right relationship with God. They need to clothe themselves with the character of Jesus. And they don't need more eye salve. Their community actually was famous for this salve that was manufactured there. You put it on your eyes to promote health and better vision. Jesus is saying, you don't need that. You need a spiritual eye salve. They need the Holy Spirit to open their eyes so they can see the truth of their condition and so they can clearly, accurately see God. If they want to have a spiritual future, they must change. And if they don't change, Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Every time I read those words, I think of that moment in that restaurant when I spit out that lukewarm chowder. We spit stuff out because it's unacceptable. And lukewarm, indifferent believers are unacceptable to Jesus because they have rejected him. Their hearts have been stolen. And so if they continue down this path, they will no longer be part of God's family. This is a severe, severe warning. And yet with Jesus, there's always hope. It's not a statement of condemnation because Jesus always is willing to relent when people repent. And because he loves these people, he makes an urgent plea for them to do just that, to repent, to get their lives back on track. He talks about that next, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Do you ever rebuke anybody? 
Parents certainly do that. Think about the reasons why we might rebuke someone and what motivates us. I think sometimes, if we're honest, we have to admit that we'll rebuke people out of anger. We might even rebuke someone out of hate or out of pride. Hopefully, though, we'll choose to do it out of love. What we need to understand is that with Jesus, rebuke always is an expression of love because he knows what is best for his followers. So he invites these believers, these Christians, to repent of their skewed values and their indifferent faith. He invites them to make the resolution to change because that's what repentance involves. Repentance is not just confession. When we repent, we say, God, I am admitting to you honestly, this is where I am and it's not a good place to be. And I want you to work in my heart and life so that I can change and head in this new direction that will connect me more strongly with you. Repentance is about confession and the willingness to change with God's help. And here's the beautiful part. If they do that, Jesus is there. He's waiting for them to invite him in. He's saying, I want to dine with you, which is a a beautiful picture of intimate friendship. Picture a a Thanksgiving table with family and friends gathered around. There's there's good food. There's good conversation. There's comfort and satisfaction of, of the security of our loving relationships. And that's the kind of connection that Jesus wants to have with us. He's not looking to us for a religious performance. He just wants us. He wants to be with us. He wants to spend time with us. And this is a plea that he is making to every single person in that congregation. Invite me in. Give me a seat at your table. Put me in the midst of all that's going on in your life. Include me in the conversation. And by the way, your experience with verse 20 might be like mine. When, whenever I hear someone mention that verse, it's almost exclusively in the context of evangelism. We use this verse to encourage an unbeliever to open the door of their heart and invite Jesus in. Now, that's not bad. In fact, that's a very good thing, but that's actually not what's going on here because Jesus isn't writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church. He's writing to his own people who have pushed him aside. He is standing outside their lives and outside their church, and they don't even know it. Hello, here I am. Anybody looking for me? That's the danger of an indifferent, lukewarm faith. And until Jesus writes this letter, the Laodiceans are oblivious to where they actually stand in relationship to Jesus. But they know it now. They know it because Jesus wrote them a love letter. And so they have a choice. They can answer Jesus' knock. Or they can ignore him. They can invite him in through repentance. Or they can continue to say, We don't have any needs. We're self-reliant. We're self-sufficient. We can take care of ourselves, and they can just head on their way. And Jesus clearly wants them to make the right choice. 
He wants them to be closely connected to him. And so he does more than just make an urgent plea for them to repent and change direction. He also offers them an eternal promise, and that's how he closes his letter. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so there's the promise. If the Laodiceans repent and they get on fire for Jesus, they'll be victorious. And if they live with a vibrant faith in this life and honor Jesus in this life, then Jesus will honor them in the next life. They'll get to be close to him and sit by his side. And and this is a promise with a picture of royal glory. And it echoes other promises made to believers in Scripture. God promises that if we hold firmly to Jesus, then we will inherit the kingdom of God. He promises that if we suffer like Jesus, we will reign with Jesus. He promises that if we are victorious like Jesus, then we will rule with Jesus. And in all of these ways, Jesus is telling us that he wants us close to him not just in this life, but forever. So the letter ends on a note of hope. And yet we're left wondering, how did the Laodiceans respond? We don't know from Scripture, but we do know from church history. And the end of this story is so uplifting. History tells us that the Laodiceans took Jesus seriously. They listened to him, they repented, and they raised their spiritual temperature. Their faith was fanned once again into flame, and this congregation thrived for another 300 years or so. To the best of our knowledge, the recipients of this letter were victorious. So they now are with Jesus. We have the same opportunity because this promise is extended to us as well. This promise can come true in our lives. It will come true in our lives if we refuse to go through the motions of an indifferent, lukewarm Christianity. This promise will be true if our faith burns hot for Jesus. I ran across a Bible commentary was addressing this passage and the author was comparing ancient Laodicea to our modern world. And he wrote these words that have really struck me. The one attitude which the risen Jesus unsparingly condemns is indifference because it is the hardest thing to combat. The problem of our modern world is that Christianity has ceased to be relevant. So people regard believers with indifference. This can be changed only if Christians demonstrate that their faith has the power to make life strong and the grace to make life beautiful. And here's the punchline. But an indifferent church will never change an indifferent world. Jesus' love letter to the Laodiceans is a red alert to every congregation. 
It's a warning. Don't become complacent. Don't become indifferent. Don't become lukewarm. May that never become the condition of this church. And as I have pondered this passage throughout the week, here is my wish, my hope, my prayer for our church. May we always have our eyes on Jesus. May he always have the honored seat at our table. May he be the focus of our joys. May he be the comfort in our sorrows. May he be the peace that calms our anxieties. May our trust be in him, not in ourselves, and certainly not in our stuff. May his priorities and not our own be at the center of our life together. May the desire to fulfill his mission and reach our lost world burn hot in our hearts. And may God open our eyes so we clearly see the deceit of our materialistic culture. That we may never forget the only way to truly be rich is to be rich in faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope we're listening.